Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 26 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha, the Clinical Education and QA Manager. Uh, joining me are a host of familiar voices. Uh, so going down my list, I see System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. And our illustrious fellows, uh, Dr. Nick Wiklinski. Dr. Wiklinski, welcome. Howdy. And Dr. Aaron McGlynn. Dr. McGlynn, welcome. Hello. And our uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Potter, sends his regards. He's unfortunately able to be with us this month as he is embroiled in his civic duty and is currently sitting in jury duty. As per usual, before we dive too headlong into our topic, uh, just a couple system updates. So I did get a message from Dan to relay. So his words, uh, as part of our commitment to providing the best evidence-based patient care, our system is academically involved in clinical trial research. We are fortunate to have the support of the medical college to organize and execute research. But more importantly, we are thankful for you as EMS providers, a willingness to participate in these activities. Change doesn't always come easy, but we know there is reward when we can find a way to do something that is better and it positively impacts our patients. I thank you all for your commitment to improving our EMS system. So some very nice words from Dan, and then I will turn it over for medical direction updates to Dr. Weston. Thanks, Jeff. Well, that actually leads nicely into a discussion about our two studies coming up. It's been a long time coming. We've had lots of discussions before about these, but uh, in the coming weeks to even days, uh, they will be starting. So we have our PD dose study. So this is looking at age-based versus weight-based dosing of midazolam for pediatric seizures. This is a national multi-center study. There's a lot of EMS agencies all over the country uh, doing this, and it could really revolutionize how pediatric seizures are treated in the pre-hospital environment throughout the country uh, and really the world. So this is an exciting study for us to be a part of. And then we also have a study going with Zoll to better understand how to optimally ventilate patients with advanced airways. So that study is underway shortly as well uh, and can make a big difference because we ventilate many, many patients as do uh, many different EMS systems uh, around the country. So exciting times for our studies, more studies coming up uh, as well to benefit not only our patients, but to benefit other EMS systems as well. So uh, I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Weston. Uh, a lot of exciting opportunities forthcoming for the system. With the updates out of the way, uh, we can get back on a topic. Continuing some of our conversations back from our June episode, uh, looking at pediatric trauma. So I will turn it over to our fellows, Dr. Wiklinski and McGlynn. All right. So this month, like Jeff mentioned, we're circling back to pediatric trauma. Back in June, you heard from Brandon and Nico about identifying sick kids using the pediatric triangle and pain management. As a quick recap, the pediatric triangle includes looking at appearance, which is things like tone, interaction, consolability, speech, and cry. It also includes work of breathing assessment, looking for signs of difficulty like nasal flaring, retractions, head and neck positioning, and breath sounds. And the final aspect is circulation of skin, looking at the skin color, turgor, cap refill, all to look for signs of shock. And also back in June, Brandon Nico talked about pain assessment and pain control for our pediatric patients, which we'll also just quickly review here. You know, as a reminder, there are, we have pain scales like FLAC or FACES, both of which can be found in the standards of care and pediatric assessment guideline. 
as these are helpful in assessing pain in younger kids who may not be able to explain their symptoms. As far as pain management, start with simple physical modalities uh, with minor injuries. These things include allowing parents to console their children, swaddle infants if able, splinting the affected extremity if able, applying ice packs, and elevating the limb. Going from there, you can try oral medications such as acetaminophen, which is a great option to help get pain control going as these medications may be delayed when arriving in the ED. In more extreme circumstances or more severe circumstances, intranasal fentanyl using an atomizer is also an option with kids without IVs. If an IV is placed, you can use Toradol, fentanyl, or ketamine. Just remember with ketamine, there's a difference between IM and IV dosing and making sure you dilute appropriately. Just for reference, one study showed no difference between NSAID and ketamine for pain, so you may not always have to jump to stronger meds in kids. Finally, we just want to mention that there are some disparities in pre-hospital pain management. These are just things to keep in mind when you're treating pain in the field. Pediatric patients are less likely than adults to get pain control in the pre-hospital setting as a whole. This is most likely due to difficulty assessing pain in kids, so remember those scales that we talked about. It may also be related to less comfort dosing and administering medications to pediatric patients. There are also some disparities in pain management regardless of age, with white males being more likely to receive pain medication despite a lack of difference in pain scores between female and non-white patients. Therefore, it's important to obtain objective measurements and guideline adherence is super important for pain management. All right, so now let's move on to this month's topics, lower acuity injuries. First up, we'll talk about fractures and extremity injuries. Most of you have seen plenty of these, you know, such as sprains, fractures, abrasions, lacerations, you know, et cetera. But the main aspect we want to cover here is assessment and management of these injuries. It may be difficult to recognize fracture in a pediatric patient. It may not be as obvious in kids as it may be in adults. Some kids may simply refuse to walk or bear weight, um, or like maybe they won't be moving the wrist that they hurt. Um, so don't assume there is no fracture if there's no deformity present. If there's ever a doubt, always splint and transport these patients for further eval in the emergency department. When it comes to assessing these patients, you know, kind of similar to your adult patients, start with the neurovascular assessment, check for distal pulses, cap refill, sensation, muscle function, with regards to the skin, look for signs of open fracture, you know, any signs of like a laceration or a cut around an area that may be broken or soft tissue injury, like a fat mass, muscle, fascia, or bone that's exposing through the skin. When it comes to deformity, gently palpate for deformities, looking for crepitus, swelling, and tenderness. Bleeding wise, look for any sort of like pulsatile bleeding, expanding hematoma under the skin or bruising. Don't forget to remove clothing and jewelry on the affected limb. It's better to do this early as swelling can occur and it would be difficult to get off later. As far as management for these injuries, uh, first of all, decontamination when possible. So brushing or rinsing off any debris um, and then moving on to splinting or immobilization. So tools that you have for this are the vacuum splint, the pro splint and the rigid splint. The pro splint is good for smaller joints like ankles, wrists and elbows, whereas you might want to use the rigid splint to immobilize a more deformed limb like an entire leg. Splinting is important for preserving the neurovascular status, prevents further injury, and also helps with pain. Make sure you're checking that neurovascular status before and after placing any kind of splint. If there is vascular compromise, you can use pain medications and attempt to realign as outlined in the OEM guideline. 
You can review this in the guideline, but essentially this involves stabilizing the joint above and below the injury and applying gentle traction. You always wanna make sure that you stop if you meet significant resistance or pain, or if you think you're back in anatomical position. Again, make sure to check that distal circulation, sensation and movement before and after doing these interventions. Of course, you'll also wanna control bleeding with pressure, hemostatic agents, or a tourniquet if necessary, and then cover any wounds that you find with a loose bandage. All right, now moving on to our next topic, which can sometimes be a little more difficult to talk about, and that's non-accidental trauma, AKA child abuse. Unfortunately, it's more common than you might think. It occurs in about one in seven children, um, more frequently occurring in children under the age of three. The EMS eval is crucial. As hard as it might be in this situation, we need to avoid being accusatory. Our priority is taking care of the patient and gathering info, but not necessarily confronting caregivers or investigating who did what. Take note of the environment. Talk to multiple family members, if possible. Be very objective with questions, such as, how did this happen? When did this happen? Was anyone around to witness this event? So some signs and symptoms to look for with non-accidental trauma are things like delayed presentation. So if you get called for an injury that happened days to weeks ago, you may also hear fluctuating histories from various family members. This might be something we see more in the emergency department, but it's something you can look out for if you're called to a child with an injury and you get different stories from different people on scene. You'll also want to look for injuries that are inconsistent with the patient's age. So seeing bruising before a kid is able to walk or crawl is uncommon and should raise concern. Usually kids aren't crawling before six months and rarely walking before a year. Once kids are mobile, bruising is more common. You can see this typically over bony prominences like the lower legs or shins, arms, forehead, spine. Think of all the areas that would be affected when kids fall down or run into things, which can certainly happen. However, bruising to the upper thighs, arms, cheeks, neck, ears, and genitalia are not common and should raise concern. Some other examples to consider are things like a one-month-old who rolled off a bed. Typically, kids can't roll at that age, or a four-month-old who walked into something. That kid wouldn't be walking at that young age. And just a couple other, you know, what we call pathognomonic injuries, meaning injuries that make us most concerned about non-accidental trauma. So those are things uh, such as cigarette burns, uh, burns to the hands or feet, we call like a stocking glove distribution. So if kids just, you know, their hands or feet are predominantly burned, burns to the bottom of the groin. Uh, this can be seen in instances where a child's being lowered into scalding water. And again, as Aaron mentioned, injuries to the groin, ear, or frenulum, which is that soft tissue and like the, that connects the lip uh, to the, uh, the gums there in the mouth. Um, these are types of things you should be looking out for that should raise your concern for non-accidental trauma. When it comes to management, it's important to consider all aspects prior to turning down transport of a child with seemingly low acuity injuries. If there's any suspicion for non-accidental trauma, then the child should be transported for further care. Aside from treating injuries, your main role is removing the kid from the unsafe situation. There is mandatory reporting for suspected child abuse. These regulations do vary from state to state, but in Wisconsin, paramedics, EMTs, and first responders are all considered mandated reporters. This means that if you have reasonable concern for abuse or neglect, then it has to be reported either to the county or to law enforcement. This does include immunity from any civil or criminal liability. 
The OEM specific protocol, if you do suspect child abuse, is to notify hospital staff or law enforcement. The same goes for any suspicion of human trafficking or elder abuse. And you can see more details on these specific practices in the protective custody guideline within the OEM app. Most importantly, accurate and detailed documentation in these cases is key. As EMS clinicians, you are in a unique and invaluable spot to be able to provide details regarding the living environment, interactions with families, and continuing care of the child as you transition from the pre-hospital to hospital environment. All right, now moving on from that sad subject to low-risk head trauma. So head injuries are more common in traumatic incidents in kids. One-third of pediatric deaths associated with trauma are from head injuries. 80% of multi-trauma peds patients have some component of head trauma. This is largely due to the fact that kids have disproportionately large melons compared to the rest of their body and go crashing headfirst into all sorts of stuff. Serious hand injury might not be readily apparent in pediatrics, so let's take a few minutes to outline pediatric head trauma to shed some light on the identification of these higher risk injuries. High risk features that you would like to rule out when it comes, so you're looking at certain symptoms um, that kind of like goes back to the pediatric triangle, which was mentioned in previous podcasts by Brandon and Nico, but these things include lethargy, irritability or inconsolability, poor muscle tone, breathing abnormalities, or poor feeding. GCS can be really helpful to gauge risk of intracranial injury. So any child with a GCS of less than 14 has an increased risk, and you should certainly encourage transport and evaluation. Depending on the age of the patient, GCS might vary a bit. There's a great GCS table in the Pediatric Assessment Standard Practice Guideline that compares adult and peds GCS calculations to help you assess correctly. You can look there for all the details, but the main difference between adult and peds GCS is how motor and verbal responses are assessed as kids can't always follow commands like adults most of the time. Other concerning features to watch for are things like neck pain, tingling or numbness in the extremities, double vision, seizures, loss of consciousness, worsening or changing mental status, and persistent vomiting. And moving on from symptoms to the physical exam, so certain things that you should be looking out for that raise concern for serious head trauma include raccoon eyes, which is that bruising you may see underneath the orbits in folks with head trauma, battle sign, which is the bruising behind the ears, which can indicate um, a skull fracture, a scalp hematoma, a depressed skull fracture, or if there's any clear drainage from the nose or ears, as this may be concerning for a CSF leak and therefore a skull fracture. We use a good history and physical exam with the help of scoring rules to help decide next best steps for kids in the ER. There are a variety of scoring tools available to help assess the risk of severe intracranial injury of head trauma, but the details of these aren't really important in the pre-hospital setting. But just for background, these scoring tools all incorporate the same aspects, which are loss of consciousness, the presence of vomiting, a severe headache, or if the kid is not acting normally per the parent or caregiver. Sometimes the best way to determine if there is a significant head injury is time. So most of these kids should be evaluated in the emergency department. This often includes a period of observation, even if the child looks very well and sometimes imaging. So for your purposes, even if this kid looks great, we often will want to watch them because bad things can happen. And sometimes we just don't know. So we do sometimes have to get advanced imaging. All of these things cannot be done in the field. So a good history and physical presented by the EMS provider with an expectation for transport is the best practice. While it is important to know how to identify high-risk injuries, we do not expect you to all be scrutinizing the details surrounding the mechanism and physical exam. 
it's better to err on the side of caution and transport pediatric head injuries as severe injury is not always apparent. And that will do it for our content this month. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please send it our way. And as always, keep up the great work and thanks for what you do. Thanks, Docs. We always appreciate your time and your knowledge and taking the opportunity to share with our providers within the county. That being said, I'll echo your sentiments. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, everybody, for attending today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next month.